All right, I'd like to ask the children to come on down front. Do not be afraid, I don't bite. Thank you, come on down. Let's go, come on. Oh, wow, we got a bunch, all right. Grab a seat, pull up a chair and sit on the floor, guys. All right, I have here something that I got from a missionary in Russia. This is, this is a nesting doll. In Russian, you say matryushka. Can you say matryushka? Matryushka. Okay, now you know how these things work. This, this, of course, is not a typical Russian theme. This is a Detroit Red Wing. <laughs> the captain of the Detroit Red Wings is the big, the big doll here. He is the captain, he, Stevie Eiserman who uh, I think still works in management for them, and, and he's won this silver cup, the Stanley Cup. Lord Stanley's Cup is the oldest trophy in professional sports. It dates back to the early 1900s. And inside Stevie, we've got another, whoops, another hockey player. Whoops, start to come apart on me. We have uh, a Russian, which is why I, I got this from a Russian. There were five Russians who played for the Red Wings, the Russian five they were called, they were phenomenal. So we have more to the story, and by the way, every Matryushka is kind of like this. There's a story, and every level you go down, you get more to the story. So this fellow came from Russia to play for the Detroit Red Wings. This is Igor Lirianov, and uh, he had four other Russians that played. They're not all gonna be in here, but they were phenomenal hockey players, and they told their coach one time, this is a true story, they said, well, we don't like the way you play hockey here. I said, what do you mean? Well, you dump the puck into the other end and you go down and get it. Once we get the puck, we like to hang on to it. Put all five of us on the ice and we'll show you how that works. This is in the National Hockey League, professional hockey. So he said, all right. So he put all five of the Russians on the ice and they kept the puck away from the other team for 10 minutes, 10 minutes at the end of which one of them got a breakaway and scored a goal. They came back to the bench and see, that's how we do it in Russia. So Igor Lirianov was one of those. Now there's more to the story. There's another lad in here who I don't think is a Russian because his name is Brendan Shanahan. So he's a Canadian, of course. He's what they call lovingly a hosehead in Detroit and another phenomenal player. And, but the story isn't over yet. So now we have another guy in there. We have probably the greatest of the Russian hockey players to come over here. I don't know why he's so little. Sergei Fedorov. And I think he'll end up in the National Hockey Hall of Fame. Just a tremendous, tremendous hockey player. But even that's not all. And inside of that, this is as far as this one goes, is, uh, my goodness, a Swede, Nicholas Lindstrom. A terrific defenseman for the Detroit Wed Wings, and he is so small. A story. Now, I show you this not just because it's fun, but because, you know what, the Bible is kind of like this nesting doll, this matryushka. Because the more you look at a portion of Scripture in, in the Bible, the more you see. The deeper you go, you get insights. And I've been reading the Bible almost my whole life, almost since I could read. And yet, every time I read it, it's like opening up another level to the nesting doll and more of the story comes out. I was trying to think maybe just one example of that. I didn't know this. I'm teaching through the book of Esther and I came to um, this uh, agagite, this 
uh, Haman the Agagite, who was the villain of the story. And there was a Jewish believer who was in my Bible study, and he said, um, did you know that Haman the Agagite was an Amalekite? I didn't know that. The Amalekites were sworn enemies of the Jewish people, which is why Mordecai would not bow down to him because no Jew is ever going to bow down to an Amalekite. The, the God says this, I am at war with Amalek from generation to generation. I didn't know that. I didn't learn that until I was about 60 years old. The more you study the Bible, the more you will get out of it. It never gets old. So keep on reading the Word of God. It is always new, always fresh. All right, you can take your seats. Yay. Yay. Okay, you're going to help him go back? Okay. All right. Either that or you have to preach. Sometimes when we do this, we're going to have, uh, we're going to have some stuff to give away, too, because kids like to get stuff, so we'll have something they can take home. All right, a word from our sponsor, again, from Interim Pastor Ministries, because today the Ministry Insight Tool is available online for your use. This is the survey, and uh, I, I really, really need you to take this. And, and by the way, everybody can take this. At the end, you can check your age in there, and if you're 17 and under, you can take it. Children can take this. Just sign on. It takes a while. <clears throat> it's a survey monkey. There are a lot of questions, a lot of things to do. The downside of survey monkey is once you start, you have to finish. If you don't finish, you've got to start all over again when you do it. So set some time aside. Time aside. There are paper copies available. One way to do it is take a paper copy, fill it out, and then punch it in. That's fine. I don't know if we have enough for everybody to do that. We can make more. But if possible, take it online. Otherwise, somebody else here is going to have to punch it in for you. I can't send these in. All right, this will be scored. And maybe just to lay this on you a little more, uh, I'm paying for this <laughs> out of what you pay me. Because I don't think it's fair to charge a church other than the salary you pay the IPM pastor. But, so now, this is a gift to you from me, so please take it. It's anonymous. Isn't that great? No, we will not know who did this. So you can just lay it out, all right? Just open up your heart here when you fill this thing out. So please do this. If we get lots of them, the more we get, the fuller, more complete picture we get of what's happening here at Hastings Bible Church. What's going on? What, what is God up to? Uh, what are some things that maybe could be better? What, what's great, et cetera? It's all on here. Please do that. You can start today. It was actually open as of last night. And it will be open for the next four weeks. Now let's turn to God's Word. We're looking today in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, beginning at verse 18, and uh, I, I made an error handing out. It's only, we're only going to go through verse 7. I think I said 17, but 7 in chapter 19. So let's read God's Word. After this, after what? After the kerfuffle in Corinth, uh, where once again uh, Paul was hauled before the Roman magistrates and the Jews complained about him, and he was able to, to escape this time without getting beaten up. 
After this, Paul stayed many days longer. He wasn't chased out of town. Then took leave of the brothers and sailed for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila, his partners in tent making. At Kenkrae, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. This is undoubtedly the Nazarite vow. And at the end of the time, a special diet and so on, you, you shaved your head. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. The usual methodology to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, for a change, they didn't run him out of town. He declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. Now, up is the direction you go everywhere in Israel. How many of you have been to Israel? Probably some of you have been there. Okay. Um, I, I haven't, but I, I had a friend that we were reading this passage, and uh, Richie Russell said to me, oh, when I was at Taylor University, we spent a semester in Israel. And once we did a, a bike ride from Caesarea to Jerusalem, and believe me, you go up to Jerusalem. It's not north, it's uphill, literally uphill. And it's quite a long, steep walk uphill to Jerusalem. So he greeted the church in Jerusalem. He went, he went to the, the mother church, and then he went downhill. And he went to Antioch, where he had been sent out as a missionary. After spending some time there, he departed and went from place to place to, to, the, next, uh, to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an, an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Let's stop a minute. What, what could Apollos have known about Jesus from John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So to John it had been revealed that here was the anointed one, the one who existed before him, who had come to be the atoning sacrifice for the sin of mankind. And somewhere along the line, Apollos had heard this teaching about the Lamb of God, the Messiah. What he didn't know yet was how that teaching had been fulfilled by the death and resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So now he has to be corrected. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Must have been a joyful time for Apollos to hear that all of the things that John had predicted now had already come true. The Messiah had come, had paid the penalty for sin on the cross, and had ascended into heaven the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon all flesh. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. 
Hmm. I've been in churches like that. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. That's a baptism of repentance. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So may God bless this reading of his word. We live in a time where I believe there has become a major breakdown of respect for authority. After the George Floyd riots occurred in the Twin Cities, you could see it even out on the streets. One Sunday afternoon, Pat and I were driving, as we often like to do on Sunday afternoon, across town through our old neighborhood in North Minneapolis, and we're right where um, one of the parkways crosses the Main Street, Central Avenue, which is Highway 65 in the Twin Cities. So it's a big four-lane street, and we're coming down a hill, down a parkway, and the light had turned green. I was about a block away, and I just happened to think to really take a look, and just as we got to the intersection, a car went through the red light on Central Avenue at about 70 miles an hour. No horn, no nothing. Unfortunately, this was not unusual. After the George Floyd riots, apparently all the laws were suspended. I wasn't not too long after that, stopped at a red light, waiting for the light to turn green. The car behind me pulled out from behind me and went right through the red light, because why should he wait? Nobody was going to stop him. The police weren't enforcing any of the laws. And as you probably know, the Twin Cities are now famous for carjackings, where somebody sticks a gun into your face, maybe hits you with it. And there, there was, in fact, actually for a while, a billboard up in, the, up in Minneapolis that said, Welcome to Minneapolis. Please be prepared to, send, to surrender your cell phone, your car keys, and your wallet. That's how law enforcement was working. That's total disregard for the law and for authority. It's, de it's just devastating. Now there's some kind of a crime... A suppression thing going on with some federal people involved. And when these carjackers, by the way, were caught, they were immediately released. They were juveniles. They were immediately released. And there were juveniles out there that had done eight, ten, a dozen carjackings at gunpoint, taking your car. That's why the billboard was up. Be prepared when you enter Minneapolis to surrender your cell phone, your car keys, and your wallet. Or get shot, I guess. It's not good, is it? In, I understand across the country, in youth sports leagues, there's a shortage of referees. Is that true around here? You know why? Because of the abuse that referees are taking from people. Because they're the ones that have to enforce the laws. But we don't do that anymore. How dare you make a call that I disagree with? Now, I suppose in some ways it's always been that way. 
in that poem, Casey at the Bat, kill him, kill the umpire, shouted someone in the stands, and it's likely they'd have killed him had not Casey raised his hand. The bay, the, so the game went on since the batter let it go. So there's always been that, but it's gotten so ridiculous that's now in, in some places in the country it's very, very difficult to even find people who are willing to referee games because there's such a total disregard for the law. There's a lack of respect. Now we have Paul's example. Well, what do you do with these narrative passages in Scripture other than look to them for an example? How, how did Paul handle things that was sort of opposite and maybe is an antidote to what we have today in terms of an attitude towards authority? Paul went up to Jerusalem. There were people in Jerusalem whose theology did not agree with his. There was still the circumcision party that in spite of the decision that had been made that the Gentiles did not have to become Jews in order to be Christians. They were still urging that to be the case, the importance of circumcision in order for you to get into heaven, basically. And, and Paul nevertheless went there in spite of the disagreements, and he showed his respect to the mother church. In other words, there were denominational responsibilities, and, and we're part of the Berean Bible Fellowship of Churches. Isn't that right? And, and I'll be going, Lord willing, on, on Thursday up to Center City, uh, to take part in the interview of a possible pastoral candidate. And, and I want to do that because I want, to learn, I want to learn more about the process because hopefully before too long we'll be doing that here uh, with a candidate for this church's pulpit. So I want to know how it works, but I'm, but I'm willing to do that. And I know some of the younger guys in the North American Baptist Conference where I belong, they really kind of cavil at that, and I was one of those younger guys, and I would, I would be frustrated by the stuff that we had to do that was denominational, but I noticed that Paul wasn't frustrated. And you know what? It was a long, hard walk uphill to Jerusalem. That was no joke. That, that took him effort. It took him time. But he showed his respect because there were those there who deserved that respect, even if some of them were people he disagreed with. You understand? It's what, what we do together in denominational things is sort of system-required time. We're part of a group of people, and, and, and they, we owe them something as they owe us something, and we give each other that respect. And so Paul is an example of that. Then he went down to Antioch. What was Antioch? Antioch was the sending church. They were the supporting church and the sending church. I don't know if he actually got money from Antioch, but they were the ones who had prayed, and it had been revealed to them that they were to send he and Barnabas out on the first missionary journey, and later Silas went with him. So it was important that they receive a report as to what was going on with the missionary work, exactly what is going to be happening here the first weekend of November, as some of our missionaries come back and report to us what is going on. These are good things to do, to show respect, to, to give the system the time that it deserves, to follow the rules of the society in which we live. It's all part of the story of being a believer. Of, of being a spiritually healthy person in a spiritually healthy congregation. So that, that's the application that I'd like to make. And it, it, it's so easy not to do it. It's so easy to find an excuse. And, it's, it, and, and just to kind of to go with the emotion and, and even to be abusive towards authority. And so just let's not. Look at how Paul lived his life. There's another problem that we can run into. I, I like to call it the Elijah syndrome because Elijah made this complaint to God 
you know, Lord, I'm the only one left. Everybody else has bowed the knee to Baal. I'm the only one left. And you know, basically, woe is me. And so God had to tell him, you know, Elijah, there's 7,000 I've kept that have not bowed the knee to Baal. You are not the only one left. It's a temptation that's easy to develop in an era of apostasy. It would have easy, been easy for Aquila and Priscilla to be very suspicious of Apollos. He didn't know the whole story yet. It would have been easy for Paul to view him as a rival in terms of being an apostle. And who did this Alexandrian Jew think he was? He didn't even know about the Holy Spirit yet. We're the only ones with the truth. And yet that is not the attitude that was taken by Aquila and Priscilla, nor apparently by the Apostle Paul. They recognized that God had been at work in this man's life, and so they called him to one side, and they instructed him more fully, and he received that. Now, there's a lot of application here for us in terms of being aware that God is working in other churches, in other denominations, in other people besides ourselves. There's a lesson here in terms of Apollos and his willingness to receive instruction from other people. Do we think we're the only ones that we already know everything? This is a, this is a bad attitude to have. It's a much better attitude to say, what can I learn from other brothers and sisters? What truth has the Holy Spirit revealed to them? Now, it's only going to be according to Scripture, of course. We have that as a standard. But maybe there is something I can learn. Maybe I should take some advice. And, and God bless Apollos for he did this. So the, the result of the fact that Aquila and Priscilla did not judge him. They did not scold him. They called him to one side. It was a private meeting. And they coached him. They encouraged him. And as a result, he went on to become an encourager of the brethren. And he was also a refuter of the enemies of Christ as he was able to prove to them from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. This is a man well-versed in the Old Testament Scriptures. So it was a dynamic thing that happened as a result of, of Aquila and Priscilla being willing to work with this guy they knew nothing about, but they learned about him, as a result of Apollos' willingness to listen to what they had to say to them. Now, I'm not, I don't know if I'm different from other people or not, but I, I don't like being corrected. You probably all love it, right? Um, you know, it's just, come on now, I, you know, and I, goodness, I went to, I went to college and everything, and I went to, I went to seminary, and, and I, you know, I got so many years of experience, and I already know everything that I need to know. And um, I actually felt quite a bit like this when I got a notice from Interim Pastor Ministries earlier this year that I had to retake the training online. I said, what? I've had the training, and I'm in my fifth interim. Now I'm in my sixth. No, we're making everybody who hasn't had retraining for two years, and you've been at it for five years, for two years, to retake the training online. And I complained to my coach, you know, like that, sort of like that. I don't know what I said exactly, but that was my attitude. And I kind of began to feel after a while, you know what, that's not a very good attitude, Dave. 
do you really know everything that they're asking you to do? Do you remember all the stuff that you had? It would have been seven years ago now that I took it, and I realized, you know what, I think I'll just sit down and take it. So it took about 10 hours of walking through all this stuff and answering all the questions and so on. But when it was all done, Gordon Sims, who runs this thing, asked me what I thought of it, and I said, I'm glad I did it. Because you know what? It's good to be reminded of what you guys expect of me. So I'm, you know, I'm sorry I was complaining about that. Bad attitude sometimes. Sometimes we have a bad attitude. And I, I'm so grateful when I think back over the years of people that called me to one side, like Aquila and Priscilla did, and coached me. I, I was just starting preaching in, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Tom, Tom Esty, who was the chairman of the deacon board at the time, wonderful, godly man, a graduate of Philadelphia College of Bible. And he said, uh, Pastor, I'd like to meet with you. I want to talk about your preaching. And uh, so he did, and, and he gave me a book. Uh, he brought me uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse's book uh, called Let Me Illustrate. And it was a book full of illustrations. And Barnhouse was a genius at illustrating. And he said, uh, Pastor Dave, you need to tell stories along with your sermons. Do you think I took his advice? <laughs> he pointed out something to me. I was just doing these doctrinal expositions, explaining what words meant, you know, because I took Greek and everything. <clears throat> uh, how, by the way, how can you get A's in Greek? And, and still not be able to read it without all kinds of help. At any rate, it's a mystery to me how that works. But at any rate, that's what I was doing. I was just, it was a dry lecture, kind of lifeless. And I, I guess you could, if you really paid attention, took a lot of notes, and you thought about it, you could probably figure it out. So this is an example of Dr. Barnhouse's illustrations. And it's one that came from a very gut-wrenching time in his life. His wife died of cancer when his two little girls were still small. They were still in grade school. And uh, they were going from the funeral to the cemetery for the internment of their mother's body. And, and he decided for s some reason, he said, I don't even really know why, that I would drive them instead of riding in the funeral car and follow the hearse. I would drive them and we would follow the hearse. So I'm sitting with my two little girls and we're driving along, and he's thinking, what am I going to say to them? And as they were driving along the street, a big semi-truck came and passed them going the other way. And for a moment, it blocked out the sun, and it was dark inside the car, and then it was passed, and they went on. And he said, girls, would you rather be hit by a truck or by the shadow of a truck? And the girls said, well, by the shadow of a truck. And he said, girls, that's what happened to your mother she wasn't hit by death. She was hit by the shadow of death. And that's the way it is for believers. For Jesus promised us that those who believe in him will never die. We pass from this life into eternal life. Now, that's an illustration and a beautiful one. He could do that with anything. Birds sitting on a telephone wire, salt and pepper shakers on a table. Everything has a story to tell. And I listened to Tom Esty. So I do stories, because stories illustrate. And, it's, and, and Tom pointed out to me, how did Jesus teach? Did Jesus do long doctrinal teachings, theological? No, he told stories, didn't he? He taught by way of parables, and he frequently didn't explain them. You figure it out. Here's just the story. You deal with it. Interesting. 
So that's an important lesson to learn, is to listen to advice. And I think of one other time, there had been a bad, tough business meeting in Gross Point. I told you that it was building contractors and attorneys, what do you expect? And somebody had said something that was really, I thought, very hurtful and wasn't true. And I, I was pretty mad about it. And, and uh, the next day, one of the trustees showed up in my office, Del Buttry. Del Buttry was a foreman at Bud Company. I, th I, th I think they made train wheels in, in Detroit. I, I can't remember for sure, but I think that's what they did in Detroit. At any rate, he worked on the shop floor. And he said, Pastor Dave, he's from the South, uh, you know, I, I just want to share something with you. I know you was upset by what happened last night, and, and I, I just want to tell you something. You don't always listen to what people say about you. He said, and you know, when I, I'd come down on the shop floor from my office up above, I would always whistle, make a lot of noise so they knew I was coming. So in case they were talking about me, they could stop. He said, but I just, my, my advice to you is don't pay attention to everything you hear from people. And I thought, you know what, he's right. You know, grow up. I mean, I've said things about people that I really want, wouldn't want them to hear, or they hadn't thought out and hurt them, and, and you know, just let it, let it go and keep on going. And so that's another example anyway. Just listen. It's a really good thing to listen to advice. It, it creates a, a sense of wisdom and depth, and, and it helps you along your way. And Apollos did that. And the, and the result was powerful. It was dynamic. He was one who encouraged the church, and he refuted the enemies of the gospel by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And remember this also. Jesus said this, Mark chapter 9, verse 40, that whoever is not against us is for us. And so we are not in this battle for the gospel alone. And then be a coach whenever you can. If you have to correct somebody, be a coach, not a critic. And be ready to accept godly direction. Now, the third problem addressed in this passage. So we got the, we got the problem, of course, with breakdown of authority. We got, the, we got the problem of the Elijah syndrome. We got the problem of the gift of the Holy Spirit and tongues. And I don't think I'm going to tell you anything that you don't already know this morning, but I just want to affirm what I think you know. So this is a coaching thing. There is something that happens here. Paul baptizes them in, in the name of Jesus, and they get the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues. And I know some of our Pentecostal brethren then use this as an example of how if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will speak in tongues. And some over the years, I don't know if they're still doing this, but they used to take this so far as saying, if you haven't spoken in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. But I want to assure you this morning, what I think you already know, is that is not the case. And so we're going to just talk briefly about the whole business with tongues. This does not mean that we need to have a second blessing, as if in Ephesus they had been blessed by hearing this teaching from Apollos, and now they heard it from Paul, and now they got a second blessing, and now they got really saved. Before they were sort of partly saved, but now they got really saved. We were talking this morning about how my... My wife, dear wife, was in Converge, a Baptist General Conference church. Then she started dating me, and she went to a North American Baptist Conference church and got really saved. That's the first blessing and a second blessing. And of course that didn't happen. That's not how it works, all right? So that's, that's not the case. That's not what it is. Nor, nor must we manifest the gift of tongues in order to authenticate the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, how do I know that? I know that because Romans 8, 9 says, essentially, that if a person does not have the Spirit of Christ, they're not a Christian. 
So everybody who's a Christian who's received Christ as their Savior gets the Spirit. And then in Ephesians 1, 13, it's just, we, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, we do receive. Every believer receives the Holy Spirit when they respond in faith to the message of the gospel. And if you've done that, you have received the Holy Spirit. And I want to turn to, this wasn't in my notes, but this is one of those things that just came to me this morning. Well, you know, let's look at something here. Let's look at the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John. And look at verse 12 of the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus is speaking to his disciples the night of his betrayal and arrest. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is what the Holy Spirit does for us. It says a little earlier that when he comes, verse 8, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the world, the ruler of the world is judged. So here's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives summed up. This is what he does for us. And, and you would have internal evidence of this. First of all, he reveals the truth to us. The Word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and we have help when we read it. There is a doctrine that's, this is orthodox Christian doctrine that is often neglected regarding the reading of Scripture and the study of Scripture. It's the doctrine of illumination. The Scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit, when a believer who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit reads the Scripture, they are illumined by the Holy Spirit. You understand it. You apply it. This is why it's always new, as I said in my children's story this morning. It, you, it keeps opening itself up to you because there's something living there. That living force is the force of the person of the Holy Spirit helping you to understand His Word. It's the truth. And then and what kind of things do we hear? Well, we, he, the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin. This is why I say when I read the Word of God, I read it with fear and trembling because I don't know what's going to hit me next. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect yet. I'm just a boy of 76, and God isn't finished with me yet. And I go on and on and on. I, I, I was uh, discussing with one of the fellows up at Garner about these things, and, and he was, we were having lunch, as a matter of fact, with him and his wife, and, and he was talking to us, you know, when I was a young guy, he said, I, like a lot of young guys, I struggled with lust. He said, I, I, that, that struggle went on for, for a long time, and he said, then finally, after repeated failures and struggling, he said, I, I really felt that I got a handle on it. And he said, at that moment, he said, I, I felt like I, I am now a victorious Christian. He said, that lasted for about a day, and God was knocking on the door again about something else in my life that needed to be straightened out. And he said, that's when I began to discover it just never ends. Because, you know, Calvin talk, talked about total depravity. Because we are so bent, we are totally depraved. 
There is no health in us. There's nothing good in us that God hasn't made and put there. And so it's a long, drawn-out process that just never stops. And when we read God's Word, it is going to happen to us that we will be convicted of sin. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. That doesn't mean you're not a believer. That doesn't mean that something is horribly wrong with you. Oh, there's something horribly wrong with you. But it's also wrong with everybody else. And it's the function of the Spirit to make us better, to clean us up, to put us on the right path. And it just goes on and on. He convicts the world concerning sin. And in and the world, at case, because they don't believe in me. And concerning righteousness, how do we know what is the right way to do things? The Holy Spirit will show us because we used to be able to look at Jesus when we walked with him on the road in the roads of the Holy Land, but now he's gone. He's ascended to the Father. How do we know who's our example? The Holy Spirit indwells us and shows us what righteousness is. And concerning judgment, that sense that there is going to be a reckoning, I don't know if you live with that, but I live with that. I like to remind myself, year after year, when I submit my taxes, we have a tax guy now that helps us, but I think, what if I'm audited? And year after year, I escape. But now they've hired how many? 70,000 new armed IRS agents. They're going to get me at one of these days. There's going to be an audit. So I, I can't cheat on this thing. I've got to do this right. And if, if I don't do it right, it's only because it was a mistake and may they have mercy on me, etc. But maybe I'll escape the IRS, but I am not going to escape the judgment seat of Christ. I am not going to be condemned. Romans 8.1 tells me that. That's for sure. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But... The same apostle who by the Holy Spirit wrote that in Romans 8.1 also wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and receive what is due to us for our deeds in the body, whether they're good or evil. And so the Holy Spirit is present within me and you concerning judgment. There's going to be a reckoning. Nobody gets away with anything. We will have to give an account for what we have done. So, well, there's a blessed word for you today. I hope it's cheerful. That's the Holy Spirit does for us. The purpose of tongues. What is it there for then? Well, first of all, it was a sign. It's called a sign gift for that reason. It was a sign to unbelieving Jews on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem that the Messiah had come and that they had rejected him and that now judgment was coming against them. It was a sign of impending judgment on the Jews. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 21, and Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12. You can look it up. It's in, it's in your uh, notes for a uh, devotional guide today. You can look it up. Then it also has a, this purpose, according to 1 Corinthians 14, 4 and 5, to edify the speaker. It, it does something for the person who does it, and that's something I don't, I don't really understand, but, but apparently there's some kind of release that has provided. Uh, and I remember one conference speaker explained it like this. There are some people for whom this particular gift is, is like a validation to them. They, they have some problems spiritually, whatever, and it's an evidence to them that they really do have the Holy Spirit. So maybe that is necessary in some cases. But with an interpreter, if it's done in the church, then it could edify the whole church. But what's the rule? There can be no speaking in tongues in church meetings unless there is an interpreter. Now, here I have to tell you another story. Bear with me. Back in the mid-'70s, in Philadelphia, we sort of accidentally stumbled into having a, a worldwide expert on demons. 
he was an exorcist, and he looked like the guy in the movie. He was from Germany. His name was Kurt Koch. And for one reason or another, he ended up at my church. It hadn't been our intent, but there we were. And he taught, and we're, so. And I got to know him that week. I chauffeured him around and whatnot, and, 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 and we talked about things. And he told me at one point, he said, you know, it's very interesting. He had traveled to Indonesia to investigate things that were happening during the Indonesian revival. And he saw miraculous things happening. He said, I, 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 I literally saw a stream dry up so that missionaries could cross it. Well, it's like in Bible times. He said, I was present in a room where the water for communion actually turned into wine. He said, I actually saw this. And, and he said, I was, I was amazed. He said, but not, not disbelieving. So he's not, he had a skeptical mind. But wherever he went in the world, including Indonesia, he made it to New Zealand during that trip and Australia and all over Europe and all over the United States. He said, I always make it a point to attend a charismatic worship service if it's just, or maybe a prayer meeting or whatever, where there is speaking in tongues. Because I am looking for authenticity. And wherever I go in the world other than Germany, I will pray in German. I will pray in German. And inevitably, someone will interpret wrongly. And then I will stand up and say, stop the prayer meeting. This brother has not interpreted what I said I was not praying in tongues, I was praying in German, and what they said is not at all what I said to our Heavenly Father. Now I would like to pray for us, and he would pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that if this gift of tongues you have given is authentic, that we will all enjoy it. And if not, I pray that from this point on in this service, we will only pray in the language of our people. Amen. He said, I have never been in a prayer meeting, and he'd been in dozens of them, where anyone prayed in tongues after that. That's the story. That's a true story. That's what he found out by personal investigation. And there's enough permittings involved that it's not just anecdotal. That's actual research. Nobody prayed after that prayer. Before that, there were people praying and interpreting, but what they were interpreting was what they had in their head. It wasn't what was being said. So there you go. I don't know what your conclusion you're going to draw from that, but I don't think we're going to start speaking in tongues anytime soon here. Another purpose of tongues, besides being a sign to unbelieving Jews, is it was a sign in a few instances here in Acts, and you've had some of them already, to believing Gentiles that salvation had come to them just as it had come to the Jews. These were early days, of course, and this was incredible that they were allowed to become part of the people of God, to be considered as the true sons of Abraham, just like the Jews, they were allowed into the family of God to be part of God's people, and there needed to be some extra emphasis, and so it was given to those first converts to Christianity in various parts of the Gentile world. Now, issue number one, signed to unbelieving Jews, is completely irrelevant now. That issue was settled in the first century, and, and I suppose capped off with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So there's absolutely no reason for anybody to speak in tongues to convince unbelieving Jews that the Messiah had come, they'd rejected him, and they were going to be subject to God's judgment. End of story. All right? The, number two is no longer needed. The tongues that are interpreted for the benefit of the congregation, we don't have to have that because we have this. The, the, the church spent a couple of hundred years praying to determine which of these books were truly inspired by God. 
given by the Holy Spirit and are true, and we have the word of truth. Praise the Lord for those men and women over the centuries who spent time discerning that for us. We don't need to have somebody stand up and get a word from God that then we don't know whether it came from God or just came from them. No longer is it needed for those prophetic under utterances to come miraculously to a congregation. And again, the third thing with the evidence in the life of Gentiles that are part of the family of God is also a settled issue. It hasn't been an issue since the first century. So here we are today with the idea of tongues. Not really necessary, except possibly for the edification of the individual. Now, I don't know, you know, what, what the doctrine of this church is in terms of cessationism. Cessationism says that all of these sign gifts, these miraculous gifts, are, they're no longer here. And since the advent of Scripture and so on, they're not here. I'm, I'm not quite willing to say that. I know John MacArthur says he's a cessationist. I, I don't think John Piper is. It doesn't matter what these people say. I, here's my problem with cessationism is only this. I don't think I'm in any position to tell the sovereign God what he can do. If he wants to give somebody the gift of tongues, the Holy Spirit decides as the third person of the Trinity that he wants to do that, it's fine with me. Because he's God and I'm not. And I am enough of a, of a Calvinist that I believe the sovereignty of God is the doctrine that trumps every other doctrine. So whatever issues we might... But I get the fact that there doesn't seem to be any need for the gift of tongues any longer. So we used to have this issue within Christianity back when I was starting out in ministry with people getting involved in charismatic churches and then looking down at everybody else because we have the Holy Spirit and you guys are just like those Ephesians who said, we don't even know if there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. And that wasn't good. And there were plenty of good, solid believers who thought, oh my goodness, I, I, I must not really be saved because I don't speak in tongues. And then they would seek after this gift. And then frequently when they get it, here's what would happen. They would spend all their time trying to get other Christians to get that gift. I think the whole thing was a plot of the devil to keep people from sharing the gospel with unsaved people. Just my opinion. Don't sweat it. Don't let your charismatic friends make you feel bad. <clears throat> all right? I think that's all we need to say about it. Now I want to do one more thing this morning. A little different, maybe, um, because I'm going to read a prayer. And I know in our evangelical free church tradition, we don't do this very much. But sometimes I like to, and I like to because this is like showing respect to those who have gone before us. And I want to read a prayer about the Holy Spirit, and it's called Come Holy Spirit. And it was written by a guy whose work you all know. You all know. Stephen Langton. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Okay. This is one of those, you're going to learn something new today. Stephen Langton was the Archbishop of Canterbury from the years 1207 to 1228. So at this time, that was not an Episcopal or Anglican church. That was a Roman Catholic church. He was a Roman Catholic Archbishop. He's the guy who divided the Bible into the chapters that we use today. So every time you look up a reference in Scripture and find a chapter, you're using the work of Stephen Langton. Is he a brother? I think he's a brother. He's also, by the way, the guy who gathered the nobles together and confronted King John and got King John to sign the Magna Carta. So he made another rather significant contribution <laughs> to, to Western history at that point. 
But we know him and love him because he gave us the chapters. Before that, we had to say with the Apostle Paul, somewhere it is written. Now you can say John 3. Now, after Robert Estienne added the verses in the 16th century on a journey from Lyon to Paris, as he was riding along his horse, he added a verse, a verse, a verse like that. Now we can say John 3.16, but at least we could say John 3 after the work of Stephen Langton. Will you bow your heads and pray with me his prayer, Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, send forth the heavenly radiance of your light. Come Father of the poor. Come giver of gifts. Come, light of the heart. Greatest comforter, sweet guest of the soul, sweet consolation. In labor, rest. In heat, temperance. In tears, solace. O most blessed light, fill the inmost heart of your faithful. Without your spirit, there is nothing in man, nothing that is not harmful. Cleanse that which is unclean. Water that which is dry. Heal that which is wounded. Bend that which is inflexible. Fire that which is chilled. Correct what goes astray. Give to your faithful those who trust in you the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit, prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, mercy. Grant to your faithful, those who trust in you, the ninefold fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the fullness of the character of Christ formed in us. Grant the reward of virtue. Grant the deliverance of salvation. Grant eternal joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.